Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 330 of the Juicebox podcast. Today's show is incredibly conversational, and I don't want to break it up, so I'm going to put the ads right up front here. Today's guest is David Walton. He's the CEO of T1D Exchange, and I expected to have a more technical conversation with him, I guess, about what T1D Exchange did, but instead, we ended up having a multifaceted conversation around type 1 diabetes that I enjoyed so much that by the time it got to an hour and a half, I realized I had to let him go. David and I are going to speak today about the research that T1D Exchange is doing with the COVID-19 virus, and then we get into his diabetes, his life, his management style, concepts about how to help people with type 1. I just really enjoyed talking to David, and I think you'll enjoy listening to him talking to me and me enjoying talking to him, and I guess hopefully him enjoying talking to me, but that's an assumption on my part because I didn't ask him. Anyway, ads are up front, podcast in the back. What is that, party? What is it? What was that thing people used to say about mullets? Business up front, party in the back? Hey, that doesn't apply to this. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter and Touched by Type 1. It's also sponsored by Omnipod and Dexcom. Everyone's got a blood glucose meter. And since you have to have one, you should probably have a great one. And you will if you go to ContourNextOne.com and find out more. The Contour Next One meter is multifaceted, just like this episode. And not just because it can speak to a Contour app on your phone, iPhone or Android, by the way, and help you make sense of the data that's coming back from your meter, but because it's easy to use, easy to handle, has a terrific test strip that will allow second chance testing. Like if you touch the blood, don't get it right, you can go back in without wasting a test strip. But the accuracy of this thing is just otherworldly. Arden's been using it for well over a year now, maybe longer, and it's absolutely the best meter she's ever had as far as accuracy goes and portability. I just love it. Anyway, if you go to contournextone.com, there's a button at the top where you can find out if you're eligible to get the meter for free. And if you're not, you can still have your doctor write you a script for it or pick it up at a anywhere, honestly, I guess a pharmacy once people are allowed to go to pharmacies again. Anyway, this meter is worth looking into. Contournextone.com. After that, please check out touchedbytype1.org. The people at Touched by Type 1 are dedicated to helping those living with type 1 diabetes to excel and they have a dance program for children they actually have a dance studio you got to go check it out touched by type1.org if you're interested in finding out more about the dexcom g6 continuous glucose monitor you're going to want to go to dexcom.com forward slash juice box and to get a free no obligation demo of the omnipod tubeless insulin pump sent directly to your home myomnipod.com forward slash juice box there are links all of the advertisers in your show notes, and they're also available at juiceboxpodcast.com. I'm not going to argue with you. You went to Princeton. <laughs> Is that a burden? By the way, we're recording. And by the way, is that a burden? <laughs> no, it, it's not a burden. Um, uh, but does everybody say it to you at some point? I, I definitely 
get it once in a while. Um, you know, interestingly, I have a I have a twin brother, and he went to a good school, Gettysburg College. Mm-hmm. But every time I would go visit him there, it, it would just be nonstop comments from his friends about, you know, why didn't he go to Princeton, and you know, various <laughs> you know jokes and things like that. And then, um, but I, you know, once I acted stupid and silly, he they, they realized I was just like everyone else. Took care of that. Hey, you know, you might be the first person I say this to who genuinely understands what I'm saying. My son goes to Dickinson. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. I have a friend whose daughter plays basketball there. Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah. I yeah. am probably a 10 minute ride from Princeton University. So you and I overlap a, a little bit, but that's going to be where that ends educationally because my son's the bright one, not me. And uh, <laughs> I think our, our overlap will, uh, around education will probably end right around there. Yeah. Uh, I actually live about 25 minutes from uh, Princeton right uh, now. I'm oh, in Pennsylvania. No, oh, no kidding. I grew up yeah. in Bucks County. In Bucks? Yeah. 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 I'm in Newtown. Oh, okay. Oh, so hold on. let's start over. I was born in Newtown. <laughs> <laughs> my, my parents moved into Lower Southampton. We lived there for quite some time. Um, my wife got a job in Manhattan soon after we got married, uh, put us into uh, the Princeton area just to be near the train. And we've kind of kind of stayed since then, but not right in Princeton. If you don't mind walking over some water you've walked over before, how old were you when you were diagnosed? Well, I was older. I was 24 years old. I, um, uh, had, I was in uh, business school at, at Penn and, uh, noticed these symptoms that ironically I knew about because I had, uh, in my very first job at at a college, I worked in a consulting company that did work, um, for pharmaceutical companies and the diabetes, the DCCT, the diabetes control and complications trial had just, uh, findings had just been released and everybody was talking about, Oh, we need to do tighter glycemic control. And one of these uh, pharmaceutical companies hired us to help them, come up with a program and we essentially designed like a uh, kind of a, I don't want to say patient compliance program. It was, it was kind of a reward system for people. If they did the um, things that were beneficial, like testing your blood sugar and exercise and so forth that, um, and it was for type one and type two, Okay. Um, this program, but um, uh, that they would get points. And we developed like a point system and worked with LifeScan who had the blood glucose monitoring. They were one of the partners. We were talking to gyms, et cetera. So anyway, I did market research and heard from doctors talking about both type one and type two and the symptoms for newly diagnosed. And um, so I I learned a little bit about it. And then, you know, fast forward uh, two years from then, you know, I'm in, I'd come back for the second semester of my first year and um, I'm going to the bathroom more frequently. I, I can't quench my thirst. I started losing some weight. Um, and I just started dating my now wife uh, like a week prior. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm telling her that this isn't normal. This isn't how I normally am. <laughs> and um, ironically, she had worked for Eli Lilly as a sales rep and a managed care rep and sold insulin. So she knew a bit about it. Um, and she didn't come out and say it sounded like it, but I asked some doctors who were also in this healthcare management MBA program about the symptoms. And I said, it sounds like type one, doesn't it? And they said, no, you're too old for type one. 
um, and you're not really a candidate for type two. So uh, then my vision got blurry and I went into the student center that day and read off the symptoms to them. And they kind of looked at me and said, well, let's just test your, your, your blood sugar. Right. Be, be sure. And then I was put in the hospital for a couple of days and, you know, off we go. Um, there was no family history. Um, although subsequently, uh, I have a, my sister's son uh, at three years old was diagnosed with type one. Is that more recently? That, that was more recently. And, um, fortunately, you know, my twin brother and I are adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, but we met our biological family when we were 18. Um, so we were adopted at birth. Our parents were teenagers, biological parents. They ended up getting married and then had a son and daughter that are our full fledged, you know, biological brother and sister. And it's my biological sister, um, whose son got developed type one. So I understand. clearly we have that, that genetic predisposition runs through there. Um, You've brought yeah, a lot of things up I have to ask you about. So A, and this is just going to be odd, I'm adopted. Um, <laughs> B, uh, are your biological brothers and sisters, I don't know how to say this, maybe you're not going to answer it. Uh, did they go to grade schools too? My twin brother, biological, and grew up with me. Right. Uh, so he went to Gettysburg. Um, uh, my Both my brother and sister went to Florida State. They grew up in Tallahassee and um, my sister still lives in Tallahassee. My, my younger brother ironically moved up to Boston. Um, And so he and his wife and he has two kids. They, they live now out West um, where again, T1D exchange is up in Boston. So I go up to, to Boston almost every week Mm -hmm. uh, for a few days. Um, And every once in a while I get to see him because he's out in the suburbs. It's, uh, but there's no other family history. There had there was none prior to my diagnosis. Right. Since since my diagnosis, um, uh, just my my nephew again at age three. Yeah. So Let's, I if, joke if, if you add us together our ages, um, you're pretty close to the the uh, median age of diagnosis for type one. Um, but I was a little bit older, and he was a little on the younger side, and. I, I know you've you've got experience with a young young child. I really yeah. do. Um, yeah. Let me ask you one thing real quick before we move forward. If you're on an Apple computer, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I turn notifications off on Outlook, but I guess my Yahoo email. Uh, is don't worry, I know what to do. You're in luck. Okay. The Apple in the top left corner, system preference, yeah. system preferences. Okay. The speaker that says sound, and then under the sound effects tab, alert volume, play sound effects through. Drag the alert volume all the way to the left, but leave it open so you remember to to drag it back to the right when you're done. Um, you're saying on the output volume, uh, sound effects, not output. So there's sound effects, I'm, output, I'm on, and input. Yeah, I'm on sound. The, oh, sound effects. Sound effects at the top. Yep. And then alert volume. There's a slider bar you run all oh, the way yeah, to the yeah, left, and then that won't happen yeah. again. I'll just keep it off. I, I don't need to be alerted. To that. <laughs> You're like, wow, I wish I would have known that years ago. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I thought I saw this with turning outlook off, uh, but I, my Yahoo emails. Okay. No, that, okay. that email really wants you to know that, uh, that, yes. it's, that it's there. <laughs> um, wh- while we're taking a break, I'm going to have my daughter bowl us something. She's downstairs uh, for school. And there. Okay, cool. Well, that's interesting. It has nothing to do with why you're on, but it is really incredibly interesting. And I 
just picture you in, you know, in business school trying to impress a new girl and you're just running to the bathroom constantly. That must have been a that must have been a a, a big a big rock to drag up a hill. Like I'm cool, I swear I am. I gotta pee again. I'll be right back. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I don't normally go twenty times a day. This I'm telling you, this is an aberration. I swear. Uh, but, but but thankfully, again, we were in a healthcare program and, and I'm um I, I was you know, as casual as you could be about you know, um, it happening in the diagnosis after, I mean, I, I didn't freak out. I kind of tried to attack it rationally, but I, I was pretty fortunate that I had a little background and I was older and, you know, I was a college wrestler. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking, wow, well, what if this had happened earlier? Like it would have totally changed probably what I did or how I did it. Right. Um, but ironically in the, in the Penn hospital, um, I received a call the first day <laughs> from a woman who I dated prior to dating my now wife. Mm-hmm. And she said, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, um, I heard about uh, the diabetes and um, if you ever want to talk to someone about it, you know, you can always call me. I know what it's like to live with it. And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've never saw you check your blood sugar or give an injection. You have type one. And she said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty private about it. Um, so often would go to the bathroom. And that's where she tested. And, you know, right from the get go, I, it kind of gave me an appreciation for the fact that there's a spectrum of how people, uh, kind of deal manage their diabetes, how they think about it. Um, I, I was diagnosed in a very kind of, uh, let's say, um, out front manner. People, people knew like, why is Dave in the hospital? And yeah. so, and I was older and it was just a different thing versus, um, you know, if someone's a teenager or if someone's younger, you um, also you also did like a group think thing to figure out if you had it. You were talking to people and asking because exactly, you were around exactly. people that they, you could ask. They knew about it, and and there were physicians that kind of thought, but maybe not. And yeah. and then then just in general, I that's often you know I that's often the way I um you know think do, through do things think. that I don't know. It's like let me talk to other people who may know information that will be helpful. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, that's, that's a smart know, way to figure anything out. I'm yeah. now fascinated that you dated a person who had type 1 and you didn't know it. How long were you together? Less than 2 months. Oh, okay. Like and a college. Certainly thing. as yeah. you're as you're being interrogated um in in the hospital and I think I was I had every resident intern med student um you know come through cuz it's an academic, you know, medical center mm-hmm. teaching hospital. Um, I got asked the same question, you know, any relatives, this, that, or the other. I had several people ask me, to your knowledge, have you been exposed to a virus in the past six months? Oh. And um, I said, I don't really have a virus meter. I don't, I don't know if I, <laughs> if I have been or not, but um, there was one incident uh, with Taco Bell where I was violently sick with a stomach virus that mm-hmm. um, happened a few months ago that I guess it's. It's possible. I was just attributing it to bad, a bad burrito, but perhaps that was a stomach virus. Um, but then I said, well, is it possible that this, this woman I dated had a virus and I, I caught it and I had the same reaction she did? Uh, like, oh, that's crazy. You can't catch diabetes. Right. Like, well, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying I can catch diabetes. I'm saying, could I catch a virus? And we both had a reaction to a virus that was, you know, this autoimmune thing. And they, and they, they kind of treated me like I was the dumbest idea they'd ever heard. Mm-hmm. And granted, it could have nothing to do with it. But 
there weren't a lot of other great theories they were proposing. So I just figured I'd, I'd throw that out. There. I would have told him I went to Princeton. Um, <laughs> so David, you're It's only April, but if we give an award this year for the most organic and natural segue, you're going to win just so you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why don't, yeah, why don't we tell people a little bit uh, about what the T1D exchange is doing? By the way, I don't know. Did we even say that you're the CEO of T1D exchange? It's not important. It'll be in the title. Um, anyway, you are. Uh, and and what are you guys doing right now uh, based around COVID-19? Sure. So, but first of all, just a very, very high level. We, we do a lot of kind of what we call real world evidence, mm -hmm. um, doing research and gathering data from things like electronic medical records um, for people with type 1 diabetes. And um, the goal is to help improve care, to work collaboratively with um, HCPs and researchers on that. So we have diabetes centers across the country that participate Yeah, through that effort. Um, this quality improvement collaborative we have with different centers, this topic came up, um, regarding COVID from some of the researchers, um, to our team that, you know, there's just not a lot known out there. You know, people are, you know, the, the early information that was coming in, you know, a couple months ago, um, was, Oh, diabetes is a risk factor. People, People with diabetes are, are getting COVID-19. And as you know, some of these um, researchers were looking into what data was really available about type 1 versus just type 2 or overall just having a, a diabetes diagnosis, there really wasn't much known. And um, a couple of things came from China and Italy that we saw that suggested it, type 1 was not a risk factor in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, but that Later, we, you know, it seemed some indications that poor blood sugar management um, are probably more indicative of or, or have more of a causal role in uh, getting infected or having a severe reaction to the infection. Um, so we said, well, we, we are set up to gather information from different centers. Um, we're not going to be able to do this automatic kind of pull of data from the electronic medical records of different hospitals. What if we set up a different system to gather data on this from um, like a survey type tool and have a point person at each one of these centers just document the cases of COVID that have come in and answer about, we have about 30 questions in this survey that will give us some idea about the symptoms they had, about what their blood sugar control had been previously, uh, what type were they using an insulin pump or CGM? If they were using a BGM, how often were they testing? Um, what medications were they on? And, and gathering this information, we you know, had a few goals of trying to characterize, uh, does it appear people are um, being diagnosed in any different rate than either people with type 2 diabetes or, or just in the general population? Mm -hmm. um, if, they are, if they are being diagnosed, um, what are the how is it presenting? Is there any pattern to the symptoms? And how is it progressing? Are people, what type of outcomes are they having? Um, is, is, are there more instances of DKA for these, uh, these people? And so the goal was let's get as many centers as possible. We started with the ones that we work with, which was a, about 15, but quickly other centers were interested and we were started talking to people at other diabetes centers and we saw what was going through on ADA websites and the new newsletters and things 
So we've gotten it up now to about 65 centers. Wow. And, and the goal is to get up to 150 to 200 cases documented so that we'll have some ability to draw some insights and conclusions that we can disseminate out, spread to the, to the medical community and, and to the patient community um, about, you know, understanding it better. Who knows what some of it is going to be um, interesting. What do we find? And then others, we might try to, you know, confirm um, some, some of the thinking that we do have, which is that just having a type one diagnosis is not, does not put you at higher risk for getting a COVID infection. Um, I, I have to we'll tell you, that. I'm thrilled to hear that because uh, a friend of mine who is a physician, by the way, went to Penn, really, you and I might be friends and we don't know it. Uh, and uh, he, he's been on a couple of times through the first six weeks of, you know, Corona. We talked very much at the beginning and then about three weeks later, and he'll come back on again as things continue to morph and change. But that really was the consensus, um, you know, that the best defense for a type one against, you know, COVID-19 is being healthy, as healthy as you can be. And in all the ways that that means, um, and that, you know, he couldn't, you know, early on figure out how someone with type one diabetes just, just by virtue of having type one diabetes would be more susceptible to it. Um, anyway, so since you said that, it makes me feel comfortable that about what we talked about. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I've, absolutely. And there are some, you know, some other, I've heard Dr. Ann Peters talk and Dr. Mark Clements, who's um, at, at a children's hospital in Kansas City and, and involved with us. And, and they've essentially um, said that's what the research at this point indicates. Right. Um, and again, it is possible that as you get more information, maybe we will learn something about a certain segment or slice. Sure. Um, you know, we're gathering some other information that could characterize this, but from all you know, what we've seen so far, and we're still early, we haven't, um, you know, analyzed all the, you know, we have about 60 cases documented in the system, mm -hmm. um, by clinicians, but we haven't analyzed all that yet. Um, we've just started to do the first 25 and there's a manuscript being written as we speak because again, some of it's doing the work and some of it's getting it out there yes. and, and helping to disseminate it and, and provide it so that other people that are looking for it, um, uh, you know, have access to that knowledge. And, um, a lot of, I've had a lot of parents that I'm in touch with just in the community where I live, um, who know that I work in the arena. Um, I, I've reached out to some proactively and a couple of others had, I had some inbound questions, you know, wondering, you know, what the situation is. Mm -hmm. and, that's basically what I've I've told them. It's like we'll learn more, but at this point, we don't believe there's a high risk. But the best the best thing to do is to keep your blood sugar in as tight a control as possible because we know infections like sugar. Right. Um, and if you keep your blood sugar controlled and to the lower side, um, uh, you, it, it likely will will help. Well, again, some... I'm, not, I'm not a medical provider, so no. Uh, but I have some it's, questions that I don't know if you can tell me from what you've learned so far. Maybe you haven't, but uh, first thing is about 60 people from about that many locations was, were there hot zones or was it fairly well spread across the 60? Yeah. So, you know, th there's a bit of, when you look at the, the data coming in, um, we still have some places with a lot of cases in New York, mm -hmm. as an example, that haven't put their, they, they joined later to the effort. So they're just going through their administrative process at their, um, at their center before they su 
submit the cases, but that should be coming within a, a week or two. Okay. Within two weeks, we should have a hundred cases, I believe. Um, we, we know that th- there's one, one hospital in New York, um, you know, said that they have about 15 cases, um, Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't seen that yet. That, that was, we haven't got that data uh, yet. But, but, but they're looking to, to put that in, but someone had done, someone had quickly looked to see through their systems. And, um, so they haven't entered that in, but they told us that they think they have 15 cases. Another, another one, um, I believe NYU said they may have eight cases. Are there uh, some hospitals that are on your list that have not reported back a type one case? Yes. Yeah. There are some that said we went through and we had no cases. Gotcha. So, so yeah. So, so that's what we need to get more of the information. We can't draw conclusions about prevalence from what the, the numbers that we have, but right. it is interesting. We've seen, and, and our centers may have a thousand type one um, people in, in that, that come to their center routinely. So some of them you know, are decent size. We even have some that are bigger than that, that are 2000 or one that's 5,000. Um, so we expect to see some cases, just if you think about general population and, and whatnot, you know, one in 200 people has type one diabetes in the U S. So, right. um, well, you know what I find doing the podcast and maybe you know, a lot of people with type one as well. I see th- there's two, you know, listen, everything's not black and white, but you meet people with diabetes who are either very, um, just micro about it they're very on top of it their a1c's are in the fives if they get into the sixes they're you know they feel like they've done something extraordinarily wrong which of course is a little silly but that's what they're that's what they're thinking they're always well within control and then you'll see other people who you know i was just having this conversation with someone last night who asked me could you interview more people who don't have technology but who are doing well and i said well that's you know subjective like what is well first of all and so the person said, you know, I'm looking for somebody, you know, like you, who's, you know, whose daughter has an A1C in the fives very consistently. I wanted to hear from someone who doesn't have a CGM, you know, doesn't have a pump and is doing that too. And I said, well, I, you know, I can try to find someone like that. I said, but you'll never know if they're achieving that A1C through protracted lows. Um, you know, they, they don't have that data. And also, when I've interviewed a lot of people who don't have, you know, any kind of technology that's moment to moment, and I ask, how are you doing? They always say, oh, I'm doing great. But then they'll very frequently tell me about an A1C that's in the high sevens or in the low eights. And then I realize that their threshold for what great means, you know, is subjective. And for them, I don't pass out during the day and I'm not dead. My doctor says I'm okay. So I'm great. And and it's, you know, there's, there's a, an interesting swing between you know, how people manage. And I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying that all those people exist and then they end up in the hospital. It's funny because I think the people who are in tighter control lose some of their control in the hospital. And I think people who are in looser control probably gain better control in the hospital. And I'm wondering if there's, if that's being tracked, because you said, you know, what were your blood sugars like prior to being in the hospital? And and do do you know, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, a couple of interesting points there you brought up that yeah. I could maybe expand on. Please, um, because I so can't. We are, yeah, no, <laughs> Sorry, we are collecting the um, most recent A1C, the date and what that was prior to them coming in. So that will give us an indication of, of where their blood sugar has been mm-hmm. um, and what their control has been. Um, so that that is part of what we endeavor to, to look at. You know, we'll get something 
uh, around that if that 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 role that you mentioned. Um, you know, in terms of the technology, it's it's funny. I you know I, I came along this this trajectory like anyone else. I mean, I feel like I was in a healthcare MBA program. I, I was very educated, um, and I had very good insurance. Um, I worked at J and J for eleven years, and yet in my early part of J and J in the early two thousands. My blood sugar control was not that good. And I was only testing with a blood glucose meter one and a half times a day. I would test every morning and then either at lunch or dinner. And it was almost, eh, you know, I've never had an endo say anything different. My A1Cs would go between mid sevens to low eights, but I never broke seven. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I had moved a new job, new house, kid, uh, you know, it, you're, you're busy with life. I was just doing injections and using a blood glucose meter. Um, you know, I decided I'd learned a little more and I'm like, I really should be doing a little better. My, you know, my endo might say you should test more, but they never said my A1C was a pro- was a problem or that, that I could be doing better. Yeah. Um, it kind of suggested if you tested more, it'll be easier to, to stay in tighter control, which is absolutely true. All the data shows that, but I was, I was a little lackadaisical about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then I, you know, I decided look, I, I want to go on a pump and see because I had a friend who was on a pump, and um, and her ex husband worked for a pump company, so I got on the pump and I saw hmm, a little bit of improvement. Still didn't break seven on an A one C. Then I joined an insulin pump company in two thousand and six. Right, I was at J and J. They acquired Animus, so I I went over and I had to, I was leading strategic marketing, which was looking at new products and what was going on with competitors and all the emerging technology and clinical data. It was a great, very interesting job. And I, I, to orient myself, I read through some presentations on, um, advanced pumping by John Walsh Mm -hmm. in San Diego. And it was a great PowerPoint that went through all the ins and outs of using it. And, but through that, I realized, wait a minute, they have these formulas for how you dose insulin, um, based on your weight and and your total daily dose and these rules of 1800 and 500 where you divide your total daily dose into those numbers to get your correction factor and your carb insulin to carb and i realized mine were seemed really out of whack i was taking one unit of insulin for 25 milligrams per deciliter uh, to correct and i was taking one unit of insulin for 15 grams of carbs that's what the educators put me on when i was diagnosed Nobody ever looked at that. No one ever suggested that might not be optimal. What have you? Yeah. I start reading this presentation and realize that those numbers don't seem to fit with the way big data analysis would ever suggest, or these formulas and clinical studies that were out there would suggest would be in a kind of a stable adult kind of ratio of those factors. So I just changed them on the fly. I looked at my total daily dose, which was like 53 units of insulin that was in my pump. And I divided it in and I just instantly changed my, my correction factor to one to 35, I think. And, um, my insulin, to carb to one to 10 and next day, one C 6.8 first time I cracked seven. Yeah. So I, I, use I, more insulin. That I didn't need necessarily the pump to deliver the insulin, but the pump tracked my total daily dose for me accurately. And all I had to do was go through the little ca- the history in the pump and I, and I was able to calculate it. Yeah. Um, and, that little formula that had been derived from some people, I think in, down in Atlanta, and, and but it was all over the education and diabetes uh, sources. So uh, for 10 years, I was on the wrong 
um, dosing. And it's easier to find issues like that if you're using technology and you're collecting data and then even have, have you know, analytics run without you having to do it. Like download reporting now and um, tools that are out there will do this automatically. But I had a, you know, I saw great endos. One worked at Stanford, one worked at Nova Nordisk. The, they didn't, I had no hypos to speak of, so they weren't really acutely concerned about anything. An A1C of 7.6 for someone with no lows and seems to be doing okay, he's busy. Mm, that wasn't, you know, they've got other more problematic situations to deal with, but yeah. that wasn't hitting the target. And I had every other thing at my disposal, great insurance. J&J covered all of our supplies mm -hmm. for diabetes. Um, so I I had no excuse. Um, well, well, and the, once I got uh, in better control, I'm like, wow, it was positive, that positive reinforcement of, well, now I'm taking the right amount of insulin. And that, you know, and I was frustrated it wasn't brought up sooner, but I was pleased that I finally figured out one of the things that was frustrating me. Yeah. So. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you had that feeling and, and you didn't just, you weren't angry about it because I've, I've met people who are so angry after they find out that it's, it's hard for them to get past. Uh, you know, I've lived my whole life like this, you know, uh, and I heard, a, yeah. I heard a podcast and my A1C went from, you know, 8.9 to 6.9 in three months. How could nobody have told me that it's sometimes it's hard to get past. Um, yeah, no, I, absolutely. And, yeah. and I also benefited from being around a lot of people with type one. I picked up some tips then after that. So then it was like sustaining that my A1C is just, you know, got a little bit better. And then we're consistently at those, you know, positive levels. And, um, because of that, that education and then the technology and then certainly CGM coming out. Right. Um, and I think I first tried it in 2007 and it didn't work very well. It was the first gen of Dexcom. Uh, but then 2008, when I tried the next one, the, uh, the seven, yep. um, and, and that, that worked better, still had some issues, but you know, wow, the insight of seeing how you spike after breakfast and, you know, all, all the, all the various things that come with CGM. Mm -hmm. um, one last point on what you just talked about with the hospital though, because I think you, that's a very interesting point that, and it, it should be pointed out from some of the data that's coming out. And there was a study done by um, Glytech on just anybody with diabetes um, or any high blood sugar they saw in the hospital, a pure hospital study um, that, it's clear if you manage blood sugar uh, and if the, the healthcare team manages blood sugar um, more tightly in the hospital, people do better um, in a lot of scenarios mm -hmm. after surgery, um, getting out sooner. Um, and if they're di they have diabetes and, and um, you know, they were in for uh, some other condition. Um, if you keep their blood sugar in control, they have better outcomes with that other scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not what's happening right now. Um, because of COVID, there are healthcare teams that understandably are trying to minimize contact with patient and blood sampling and, and they're, they're busy and, and, you know, being tapped, you know, the bandwidth is being challenged. Yeah. Um, and, and what that, this one study showed is that, um, you know, David Klonoff was the author that, um, that people aren't doing as well. There, 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 there are a lot of people. And again, this was a lot of type two diabetes, um, but you know we're certainly interested in the type one um, angle, and we are going to be looking at that uh, potentially with um, with them. And, and this data that comes in from all these three hundred hospitals that um, that they work with, and it's it's fair to say that there are people that get frustrated when they go to the hospital if they've been managing their diabetes well, type one, 
And then they're told they can't use their pump. You know, um, they can't be doing it themselves. And I know of a number of hot, there are hospitals that will defer to the patient preference if they've been self-managing all this time. And if what they're in for the hospital for is such that they can be lucid yeah, and, yeah. and clear in their decision-making, then let them keep doing it because they have been doing a great job 24 seven outside. So why are we going to change that? Because we're a healthcare team that doesn't know their body as well as they do and, and so forth. But that's a, you know, it, it, you can see it's a, a, a challenging problem to know what's that threshold for a hospital to say, no, we've got protocols for our quality and we don't want to get sued. If something happens, we have to follow certain rules. And, you know, there, there's, it, it, I can understand both sides of that equation. Uh, but clearly I know people that have gone in to the hospital and said, I'm keeping my pump. You're going to have to rip it off me. I do a good job with this. I don't want this being um, mismanaged. Yeah. And I, to your point, some people might be a little over the top with that, but you know, you understand where they're coming from because you know they're a little anxious about what's going on, and they know they they can do it. But if they pass out or if they're given you know medications that change their thinking, you, you know you you've you've got concerns there on the other side. So yeah, we we do a problem. we do a um a series inside the podcast called Diabetes Pro Tip, uh, and I do it with Jenny Smith who works at Integrated Diabetes. Uh, she's a, oh, C yeah. she's yeah. a CDE. She's had type one for over 30 years. And there's, I don't even know at this point, there's probably like 20 episodes of it, but we very recently went over emergency room protocols and how to handle yourself during an illness and injury or a surgery. Uh, because it's just so, um, it just, it, it, it's not something that would occur to you. You get into a hospital in a position of thinking, well, these people know better than I do. And you just kind of hand yeah. yourself over to it. And it, it's very infrequently with diabetes, the case, you're, you're often, you know, the best arbiter of what's going on. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's incredibly important. Also, I want you to know that when you reached for the word lucid, and I did it exactly the same time, it made me feel like I should have tried harder um, in school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing my, my mom, uh, who I grew up with, right? So as I mentioned, I was adopted. Um, she was a voracious reader and a stickler for grammar and vocabulary. Right. Um, and just because she read so much, the words that she would use around the house, uh, some of it I just picked up because I didn't like to read that much. <laughs> uh, certainly, not, you know, I, my twin brother and I played sports constantly, and they, we were typical boys. And sitting down and reading was sometimes, you know, like just uh, couldn't be done. Yeah. Uh, but I, I read in school, certainly, and all that. But um, she's responsible in part for, uh, sometimes I, I would, you know, use, use the, uh, the SAT words. And then I, I did some SAT tutoring, um, after college, uh, on the side right. to make a little extra money. And I had to learn extra vocabulary so that I could make sure I knew what I was talking about when I tutored some of these kids when vocabulary was a bigger deal on the SAT. So yeah. it, it's, it's purely, uh, there, these circumstances that exist sometimes explain, you know, explain things more than any other, you know, innate ass. My, my grasp of vocabulary is, you know, probably the same as anyone else's. I got my vocabulary from Howard Stern. So I. <laughs> and hence you got into the uh, yeah, radio interviewing or, or podcast. There are times when I think I'm probably only halfway good at this because of uh, how much of that show I've listened to. Um, <laughs> there's just a, I have a timer in my head and when my timer gets bored, I just, I move it along. And I think that's uh, a, a helpful thing. Um, okay. So interesting. I want to kind of just hit one thing and then I want to ask some more questions, but you know, I don't know that people think about it 
because you get diagnosed and then you're sort of frozen in that time period, right? That happened to you. You were diagnosed. This was the level of care. And then that just became what was. And as the world moves forward around you, your care doesn't always move forward with you. And that makes sense if you're with the same doctor for too long or you're not around other people with type one and you don't say to yourself, like, how come that guy gives himself insulin before we go to the cafeteria and I'm doing it after I eat? You know, like, like those small ideas. Um, And, and we also all sort of sit back traditionally and we wait for the ADA to tell us what our A1C should be, right? That happens historically over time. The ADA says, this is your goal. And then technology gets a little better. And the ADA says, you know, we've done some research. And the problem is, is the research started 10 years ago and they're rolling up in 2020 and telling you, here's what your A1C should be. But, you know, I did some research, too. It was called I Took Care of My Daughter and Figured Out How to Use Insulin. It turns out you can keep your A1C lower if you have a handful of, you know, tricks in a bag that you can that you can use, for the lack of a better term. I call them tools on the podcast usually, but they're just simple ideas around using insulin that keep your blood sugar in a more stable and lower place. Um, and so I understand completely the need for the diligence you know, looking at data over time to come to a conclusion and tell somebody something. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, I shouldn't be listened to like the ADA should be. Their 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 information is vetted. But that vetting process takes time where my vetting process is faster, right? It's it's yes, anecdotal yes. at first, but then eventually it's experiential and then it it then it's provable. And I'm I'm a firm believer that I, I think it's nice when people in the diabetes community say things like, you know, your diabetes may vary and, you know, your your experiences with diabetes may vary. I don't argue with that. But the way insulin works, that doesn't really vary. That's pretty scientific, you, you know. And so the way you use it or what you eat or your activity level or all number of other variables uh, variables could be different. But at its core, and I'll, I say it constantly, I'll, I'll, I don't think I'll ever stop saying it. Type one diabetes management is about using the right amount of insulin at the right time. Absolutely, right? I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I the, and again, I worked at an insulin delivery company, Animus. I mean, what what was the the point of wearing this this pump twenty four seven? It's to give the insulin in a better way because if you give insulin in the in the optimal fashion, you will have great results. Mm-hmm. It's just very hard to do, but if you pick up all of these all of these little tips that you're and and scenarios about the, you know, the first thing people discovered with CGM, and I heard Dr. Bruce Buckingham mention this at, at, um, at Stanford a lot, was, um, oh, if, if you, uh, once you put CGM on someone, the first thing they realize is how much that oatmeal causes them to spike and they don't, their blood sugar is high for three hours afterwards. Yeah. Um, so people start switching to bacon and eggs, you know, <laughs> like the carbs in the morning when you're insulin resistant. That, that that hyperglycemia contributes, you know, a decent amount to to people's kind of above target you know, glucose throughout the day. Um, that that dosing formulas that I mentioned, I mean, those, yeah, not everybody is going to uh, fall right to exactly to the formula. It just so happens I do. I'm like literally it works um, right on those that it just it fits and my weight. You know, the amount of insulin I use a day is almost exactly half of my weight in kilograms, mm-hmm. which is what one um, endo had mentioned to me, that that's a good rule of thumb. And it turns out I get pretty good control, you know, in the sixes, uh, mid sixes to high sixes, depending. And now with 
control IQ that I use, it's, um, you know, I'm more in the mids and, and I'm not having to, you know, I love that. And we can talk about that later, but, <laughs> but that aspect of the, of the dosing, um, I fall exactly on that. And so I know there are people that have, that don't fall right on that, you know, yeah. and that, that average comes from, you know, a distribution and a number of people. But when you're way off of that average for no good reason, um, or you're doing a number of things, like it, it certainly should give someone pause to think may, maybe there are some things that aren't tailored to me that may, maybe I do need more. And a lot of people don't take enough basal insulin. And so they're putting a lot of insulin to correct for these excursions they have, these highs that because, you know, if you're, if you're not taking enough basal, it's like you've already kind of lost the, the battle. It's so hard to recover uh, to, to, you know, given how long it takes insulin to work. So David, you would like this podcast. Um, uh, I definitely agree. But one (laughs) thing I do want to say about who can, who's able to figure that out on their own. You know, there is this, it's no one. It's It's because of life, man, because you're busy living. Here's how I was able to figure it out. Right. I don't have type one. It's for my daughter. And because it's for her, I feel an incredible responsibility. Right. And yeah. I I was and, and continue to be, to some degree, a stay-at-home dad while she was diagnosed. So I had nothing to do but stare at her and <laughs> and figure it out and 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 go through the, the the real defeating moments and realize, like, I can't let this be her life. Like, I have to figure this out. Like, it must be doable. Some people are doing it, but nobody could explain it. You know, on a side... I got a note yesterday from someone that said, hey, there's someone with an Instagram account ripping off your ideas for the podcast, but trying to put it in their own words, and it's it's funny. And so I went and looked, and sure enough, they're, it's ripped right out of the, the podcast, and that's fine, you know, whatever. But my point is, is that they said it in their words, and it doesn't work that way. And so there's something about my specific experience and who I am and how I communicate with people I'm telling you those those pro tips. It, it you know, the other day I I, I put a website up for it uh, because people were asking. So I made diabetesprotip.com just so people wouldn't have to you know go through the entire um, podcast if they were just looking for management because it's interesting. Some people are very interested in community, and some people are very interested in management. The community. Um, you know, just regular interviews with people with type one and not even like hooked in people, like people you don't know. They don't have a podcast. They're not online. They're just people with type one. I try really hard to keep those interviews to to people like that, right? Those are the most popular podcast episodes, but the people who care about management are fervent about the management. It's, it's interesting how some people want the community and some people want the management. But anyway, I put up this thing just yesterday. And I said, hey, I've got this diabetesprotip.com now. Uh, here's the link. If you could help me in the comments below, just if the podcast has been valuable to you, could you share here? And, you know, so people who are coming on new could, could you know, figure out what to expect. And I didn't even believe some of this. this there's, I'm just looking now. My four-year-old's A1C is down from 9.7 to 5.9 from the diabetes pro tips. My husband's is down to 5.6. Um, and, and it just, it goes on and on it, it's, it's fascinating. And so I'm proud that I found a way to talk to people about it because once I could do it, I thought, well, now how do I replicate it for everyone? You know, like how, how do I make it as mass market appeal as possible? The idea of, uh, you know, how we manage. 
And I just broke it down and kept breaking it down and distilling it until it's just the simplest ideas so that while you're busy living your life and you know, you're worried about getting COVID-19 and whether or not you can afford your groceries and if how you're going to do it, your job and you know, all the other things that people worry about when they start noticing a trend up in their blood sugar that they don't have to go back to a book or go to a doctor's visit. Like what, what one sentence can you kind of say to yourself that'll bring it back for you? And I tried to do that with all the tools. And I think I have, and, and, and it's interesting when I used to wonder out loud, like, why can't doctors do that? But now I realize that my whole life's been about communicating with people. That's not what a doctor's life is about. Like they know the idea and some of them are terrific at it. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of them aren't. And, you know, like, you know, or a lot of them are just like, oh, David's fine. He doesn't pass out. His A1C is not too high. There's bigger problems here in the practice. So I'll go. Well, I think on the adult side, you know, you find this more. I mean, think about, uh, you know, an adult um, endocrinologist. How many people with type two is he seeing? And, you know, in general, people with type two diabetes are not as engaged and, and don't spend as much of their mind share on their diabetes as those with type one do. Right. Now, it's obvious with kids. I mean, usually people don't have another condition. If they do, it might be asthma or it might be something else. But diabetes and with their parents also there, the amount of collective, you know, mind share that's focused on that and the importance of that and so forth, um, different. So you can imagine these endocrinologists who are just beating their head against the wall because they've got type two diabetes patients with multiple chronic diseases. They're, they're not taking their insulin, forgetting to take their insulin. They're not taking enough insulin. Their, their numbers aren't getting any better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if they're worried about a low, because if, you know, my endocrinologist mentioned this to me that, you know, when he's had low blood sugars with some of his older patients, it's when he has their adult child ensure that they take their insulin every night. And then they get a low because he's been adjusting their insulin up based on the, based on the haphazard that, way they use it, the way they use it. Right. And so that's part of their skittishness. They're like, cause they don't want to you know, do no harm. They're afraid to yeah. give someone something where an older person who's not used to hypo, that's the thing that happens with type twos mm-hmm. that they have many more cardiovascular issues. Heart attacks occur when they're not accustomed to having a low blood sugar and they end up having it at, you know, when they're 65 to 75 years old, it can be, Impactful. that can be very um, dangerous. So yeah. having spent some time also in the type two space and looking at smart insulin pen caps to try and track that data so we could try to attack that problem. It's a huge problem and it's, it's overwhelming. And certainly for primary care that's taking care of those, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it certainly can be that way. Well, the percentages, I, I see them here because there's there is no more popular type one podcast than this one and i know how many people listen to it versus how many people have type one diabetes and the percentage of people who you know are looking for this kind of information is still small compared to how many people have diabetes there's there's far more people who fall through cracks for you know the reasons you mentioned and many many more yeah. than than who well, are going to yeah. have the wherewithal and the and the drive yeah. to figure the rest of it out yeah. Well, you know, interestingly throughout, you know, I've worked in healthcare for 25 years and before I was in the diabetes field, you know, I was a consultant working with health plans and with pharmaceutical companies. And I remember looking at uh, segmentation, consumer segmentation, and what are the different kind of types that behaviors and um, 
a couple of these different analyses show that there's like this 15 to 20% of the population that um, are the proactive segment. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are going to go research. They're going to go take control of things. And if you ask them, how do you approach care? Do you, do you research it and then go ask your doctor? Or do you wait for your doctor to tell you because they're the trusted healthcare professional or somewhere in between? And when you look at that, it's you know 20%, maybe 25%, depending, um, are in that proactive kind of um, thing. And I saw it in oncology. They saw another company had done this. And the people who are the passengers and people who are the drivers and then people that are you know something else. And that, unfortunately, like a lot of the digital health tools and a lot of things that get built, uh, get built for the proactive segment. Um, but we only address that, only that kind of, population takes full advantage, it's very hard to get to some of the other people. Um, or th- you have to do more to, to, you know, bring them along that journey to educate them, you know, et cetera. And this, this is one of the, the, the challenges in healthcare across a number of different conditions, but type one diabetes is certainly in that, um, you know, in that same, uh, in that same vein, yeah. you know, that the, there are, you know, you can, you can go online and, and look at, um, influencers and so forth. And, you see certain profile of people and, and they're, they're the ones that are, have this, they want to share with what they know because they've seen it work. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why aren't more people doing this? Right. But there are a lot of other people just living their life who don't, aren't connected to people. They don't know about things. And so awareness of some of these things, um, you know, is tough. And like, I've been at dinner tables at a restaurant and I'm, uh, adjusting my pump and telling someone, one of my friends about it, like they're asking what I'm doing and the table next to me, a woman leans over and says, I'm sorry to, to butt in, but my boyfriend has type one and, I, and he just doesn't want to listen to me. Um, could you talk to <laughs> literally <laughs> at the dinner table? She's having, asking me to tell him why he should test more and all this. And so I, I understand that. And I, I try to massage the situation. I mean, this guy does not want to be told by a stranger what to do in, mm-hmm. a, in a public place. That's not the way to, to handle it. But she cares about him and she, and she's frustrated. She can't make an impact. And, but people are all over the place. And that's because I did a lot of market research at Animus and surveyed thousands and thousands of people at a time. And, um, you know, it, it gave me a real appreciation for that uh, spectrum, just like when I was diagnosed and I mentioned, um, you know, the previous ex ex ex-girlfriend who took a different approach to her type one diabetes than I did once I was diagnosed. And that's perfectly fine. That's people are different. And, you know, the way people, you know, these different personality types and so forth, it transcends the a type one diabetes diagnosis. It's not necessarily going to change someone. So understanding that people are different and that different approaches are needed to get people into the education circle. Um, For me, I, I realize that everyone's life is going to take a different trajectory and their level of, you know, how much they want to put into their health on many different fronts is, is personal. And I'm okay with people making those decisions for themselves as long as they know what their decisions are, are going to bring. Like as long as they understand it's okay with me. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but if you want to get in your car and drive it into a wall, as long as you understand the car is going to, you know, crash into the wall and you're going to die right on you. You've got free will. You can do whatever you want. Um, You know? And so I just want them to know how insulin works. I think once you understand how insulin works, then the rest of the things that, you know, quote unquote are happening to you, you can start to see causality for, and then you can make your own decision. Like, do I want a pre-bolus? You know, um, it, yeah. I think yeah. pre-bolusing knocks a point off of A1C. Yeah. 
it, you know? it's absolutely. Um, and again, I, I mentioned that Buckingham comment he made in 2007 at an ADA conference. It just struck me, you know, at the time. And um, if it, so if you were to think about, and we, we actually came up with a list of these for insulin pumping when I was at Animus, I remember, you know, this concept of so many people say if they just could share what they know, or they wish they knew this earlier, mm-hmm. right? So the idea is, well, let's get more people to understand these things. And so the basics of pre-bolus, the basics of how much it should be roughly for the carbs or, or to correct based off your weight and based off, you know, trial and error sometimes helps you, but you have to get that right. If you're, if you're, you know, and I was, I was, again, I was taking too little insulin for what I ate. And then I was taking too much to correct. Yep. So I had this little yo-yo thing going on, but you know, given that it takes insulin a while to work and I don't know, four hours is probably an average duration. We know some people go five or six and some might be within three, three and a half, but that's about as fast as the rapid actings go. Now you have ultra rapid acting, I guess that can be a little faster. Um, a fres- you know, inhaled insulin that could be certainly faster uh, to bring down high spikes, but that gets, you know, that's a, that's like the master's level, like the introductory level you're talking about having just, Hey, if, if you, if, if you um, did a handful of things like the pre-bolus, that right amount um, to avoid lows, you know, you did what's necessary, whether that's, if you have a pump, you can do something. If you don't, and you're on injections, you do something else by eating. Right. Um, but the timing of your, when you take your long acting insulin and there certainly are better ones now than there used to be. So it's, they're more forgiving, uh, but they used to be that you needed to get that right. You know, you couldn't miss the time window too much or that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. So you go through, a, it's not a, a list of 50 things. No, right? here it you is. Y- your basal has to be right. That's first. If your basal's wrong, nothing yeah. else works. And exactly. the things you're seeing are ghosts because they're not real. And you don't, you don't know if that low, what that's from, you know, when when I do a a talk in person and I explain to people that if their basal should be, you know, two units an hour, but it's a unit an hour, then they're a unit deficient every hour. Then all of a sudden they come along, see a meal. And I say, I always say like, let's say that God himself has come down or herself has come down and told you that this is absolutely 60 carbs and that your carb ratio is 100% right. You can definitely trust it. You count the carbs, you put the insulin and your blood sugar shoots up. That's because most of your bolus is really just making up for the job that the basil was supposed yeah. to be doing. Yeah. When, yeah. when you say something like that to people, the the look of awe on their face is is fascinating. Like, why would no one tell me that? And yeah. and it's because no one knows how to tell you how to adjust your basal insulin. And so I figured, you know, I figured out a way to talk about that. And I was like, look, I, I talk about basal insulin like volume. I'm like, you turn it up until it's as loud as you as you can stand it. And then if that makes you a little too low, then just turn it down a little bit. I, if you had a pump, David, and you're and, anybody and your basal insulin was wrong, I could spend a half a day with you and fix your basal insulin. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. it. It's yeah. not hard. Uh, no, I, I absolutely believe that. And when yep. we, again, design these download reports for clinicians to download the pumps and then with CGM data as well, I mean, that's often, you know, the ones who are really good and used to doing data interpretation to help patients out, that's the first thing, the first thing they look for is, are they having a bunch, are they having lows? If, if, you, if they're not having the lows, then it's, let's, let's go, and, and even if you're having lows, it could be the basal's wrong, mm-hmm. but usually people are under basal. That's they're what not I find. Up basal. So, that's so I to find. your point, it's the number one thing from a percentage of the time it's wrong, like that's where you go first. 
you have to get that right because then, like you said, why worry about your attempts at trying to fix your bolusing and all of that? The timing and the amount are, are futile because you're you've got the wrong background that you you can't operate in. So I I to- totally agree. I I practice not on purpose, but I practice for this podcast by talking to people privately. So try to imagine never meeting someone before, having a phone call with them that lasts less than an hour and figuring out their issue and pointing them in the right direction, not being able to see anything except for what they're telling you. So you have to learn how to ask the right questions. And then you have to learn how, like what the path is for them. Like, where do they start? And eventually during that conversation, they'll feel a little emboldened and say, okay, so around my meal, and I always say, no, your meal is all wrong. It's not even worth, I know it's frustrating, but everything you've been staring at trying to figure out around your meal, it's all meaningless data. It's not real because your basil's so far off. And I said, so you're going to have to forget everything you've seen before and start over again. Um, It's just, you know. I don't know, man. It, it, well, no, I find it frustrating and, and, and yeah. uplifting. No, at but the same you know, time. what you just mentioned, it brings up two two thoughts. First, I, you know, I just was t- talking to some people at, at T1D Exchange about this. You know, we have new people come in. Um, I've started giving a diabetes 101 presentation that um, I kind of updated an older one we had and put additional content in there for my experiences in industry and so forth. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting um, that um, oh god, I just lost my train of thought because someone's banging outside my door. You, you don't hear the banging. Now. No, I don't hear the banging. Do you need to get out of the building? Or... <laughs> yeah, the deck's getting uh, repaired. Oh, oh okay. Uh, you you um, said you redid the diabetes one hundred and one that you guys had. Yeah, so so we we give that education to everybody about um, yeah, you know, so they have some some you know baseline understanding about um, you know what's taking place. And one of the things we were talking about, and I, I mentioned was, um, you know, people counting carbs incorrectly mm-hmm. and bolus, bolus calculations. So it, it turns out there are lots of studies that show that people consistently under dose their bolus insulin. Yeah. And, and the thoughts and Howard Wolpert, when he was at Joslin did a nice study with a 30 gram apple and showed most people guessed it was 10 or 20 or 15 and that correlated with having a higher A1C and the people that saw it at 30 or 35 or 40, which were fewer, um, their A1C was better. And so the idea was if you're better at carb count, you're more accurate at carb counting, you're going to have a better, it correlated with a better A1C. Is it, is it causal or is it uh, who knows? But certainly it makes logical sense that if you're better at that, but the reason people are consistently under is because they have a fear of hypoglycemia. So are they really, do they really think it's only 10 or 20 or are they nervous about giving too much insulin and getting a low blood sugar? And so we did some research uh, with, with a, a, an insulin maker um, about this fear of hypo issue to try to understand some of the aspects of it and the severity and so forth. And we, we're going to be doing a broader survey and check. There's some things that we're going to be, you know, teasing out, but it does, you know, it brings up that interesting point about, um, you know, there are there are reasons. Sometimes you can think the answer is we just got to hammer people with carb counting. Let's give them apps. Let's give them flashcards. Let's let's get a picture of the uh, the food they eat and send it to a reference database and tell them what it is. You know, I've seen a couple of these apps that you can scan the photo and or scan the food plate and it will give a reasonable estimate of the carbs. But it turns out people may actually have some intuition about what the number is, but and they're down. 
down adjusting because they're nervous of that. So that's the first point. Yep. The second would be the potential and promise of finally good closed loop systems or hybrid closed loop systems in the market here. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I'm a little biased because I use the the, the tandem with the control IQ, but um, you know, th- this promise that we've been hearing about for at least 15 years since I've been working in the diabetes industry. It's right they here. They were talking about closing the loop. Yeah. Um, and now some of these issues that do exist where you can say, is it an education? You know, can, can we help people understand this better and, and, and uh, train them better on these things? Or can we use technology to handle some of the challenges that just only some people have been able to master themselves? Right. Uh, some people just won't. And there's a spectrum there. And, you know, the, the, the power of this with the time and range that, you know, we're seeing with people. Um, and that's the, you know, the thing I'd point out is my A1Cs haven't improved that much since going on this, but I have no lows. Mm. So, you know, I like zero will be my time, my time and range will have zero. Sometimes I'll have 1%. Uh, I used to be at seven or 8% consistently. Um, and that's that to your point in the beginning about there are some people that keep A1Cs down in the fives, but, you know, but they, they've got some real significant blood sugar, low blood sugars at times. Um, I used to have more. I never, I've never passed out. I've never had something that bad, but I've right. certainly had a lot more lows and I'd have to, you know, go run and get something to drink and, and whatnot. I, that just is much less. Um, and that's because of the technology, you know, night times, you know, m- being much better. So that whole issue of, what are some of those tips? There are tips that you still would need to do even with these kind of systems. Yep. But then there are things like overnight control can be drastically improved um, because I, I can't think and do things at 3 a.m. when I'm asleep. Right. And the system can. Yeah. I start off all of my talks by um, talking about fear first. Like you have to get rid of your fear of insulin first. It's just it has to be, you know, you, yeah. if you're going to be afraid of this, it's not going to work out. I talk about, you know, when you're asleep. It's a third of every 24 hours, basically, right? Yeah. So it, it's free A1C time. Think of it that way, <laughs> you, you, you know, uh, and, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, pre-bolusing and readdressing blood sugars when they don't go the way you want. My daughter's not, you know, low, um, you know, a scary amount. I mean, everybody has a scary low once in a while, but it's yeah. not yeah. not a monthly occurrence or anything like that. Her A1C is just cemented at five and a half. And she has no diet restrictions at all. Like we had Chinese food for dinner last night and, you know, and then she worked out afterwards. Like, it's not like, you know, it, it's a regular life. And her A1C has been between five, two and six, two for six years. And it's just doing the things yeah. that I talk about on the podcast it, and it's being, it's understanding them. And they, don't get me wrong. Like after you have some experience with it, it does become second nature you know, I don't look at a, an elevated blood sugar for an hour and a half trying to figure out if this is the right one to put another unit on or not. You know, like it, it, it comes to me pretty quickly. I'm still teaching it to her. But the other part of me believes that closed loop systems are going to keep her from really needing to understand all of the things I understand. And you alluded to it. I'm happy about that as a parent. Like if my daughter can, my daughter's not the, um, you know, she's not the sounding board for the rest of the world. She's a person who's going to try to live her life. And if she can live her life without the burden of knowledge about how insulin works that I have, that would make me happy. You, you, do you know what I mean? And and I see yeah. it too. Like, you know, it, it's it's obviously here. You know, control IQ is here. Horizon's going to be here before you know it. I'm assuming yeah. Medtronic yeah. will 
figure out how to make that other thing work better. Uh, yeah. And you know, you know, well, no, absolutely. The, yeah. the next version of Medtronic will be better. You mentioned that those are three closed loop systems, and there are four other ones that are in development right. and um, will be out within a couple of years. So that's you know, it's super exciting. The proliferation of these different systems, but you know, I think the point you made, like even when you're using these systems, they'll handle, they'll help take over certain issues or problems or and make certain things better but you have to have a base understanding of how it's working and yes. what to do when oh wait a sec uh i ran out of a supply or my cartridge something malfunction i'm getting an alarm here and they have they have some technical support and you can call it but there are times you know where some things have happened where i had to improvise mm -hmm. and understanding what to do um you know understanding how insulin work when I was traveling five years ago and uh, had an empty vial of insulin in my carry case. And I went to go fill up my cartridge in my pump and said, oh, I don't have any insulin. Yeah. This was at, you know, one, at midnight. And I, places are closed. What am I going to do? And I found a 24-hour pharmacy. And then I go and they can't get the prescriptions not on file. Um, so they could give me regular insulin. Um, and so I got a premix. Uh, and I just kind of guesstimated what I should do based off of what I knew and how much I knew I took for long acting and short acting. I divided it up and turns out it worked reasonably well. That's interesting. Um, but like if I couldn't have done that, what a scary thought if you were by yourself traveling somewhere in a different city and you don't have anything like what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. um, these these things happen. I mean, I, I everyone's going to have a moment of absent mindedness or forgetfulness or, you know, unexpected you know, something came in and took change your plans and you weren't preparing for that. And, um, you know, I joked to my wife, you know, going for a walk right after I took a lot of insulin, it's just a walk, but it's amazing how that my blood sugar will go down. And I just, it, it surprises me every time and it shouldn't, it's like, I'm just walking, <laughs> but, but, but it's insulin. And, you know, I play basketball on the weekends and I, you know, uh, you know, lift and work out. I, I'm relatively active. Walking right after insulin, it's amazing how my blood sugar drops. And certainly when I, you know, I ran a couple marathons way back when, um, I learned how my, how to balance the insulin. I take any insulin on board relative to how long I'm running for, how hot it is. I'm a big guy. So like, you know, I think it's even more drastic. So I would have to drastically cut back my insulin. Yeah. Um, you know, but that was trial and error that there wasn't a simple formula I could follow. I talked to people who also ran and, but I was a little different and, um, you know, you learn these things, uh, how to tips from other people. So I do think that other people with diet with type one can be the best source of information, um, provided you, you can kind of take it in the right context. So yeah. you learn a tip or two from somebody, but know that like, Someone else responds differently to oatmeal or to steak than I do. Oh, yeah, 100%. Or you'll hear people like call, yeah. have to bolus for coffee and other people don't have to. for the Exactly. Caffeine. I'm yeah. one who has to bolus. Right. And I don't drink Starbucks often, but my kids love it. And um, I, I get the sugar free. I get, you know, um, and, and with that caffeine, and what I, I, I have to take four you and a half it. units if I get a venti uh, macchiato yeah we've been we've been doing but if I drink um, diet coke with caffeine you know nothing not a problem zero impact. so i it's i don't know yeah some diet sodas make my daughter's blood sugar go up and i yeah and i, I hear people even... talk about that and like i drink so much diet soda and um like a lot of people with type one <laughs> and 
zero impact. Like I, and I've, I've looked at this, I've watched and see because people will tell me, Oh, your body treats diet just like regular. And I say, well, yours mine does. doesn't. Yeah. Mine your, doesn't right. Yours does. We've been doing, we probably have a half a dozen podcast episodes now about algorithm based pumping. And there's more and more coming. Cause I have to tell you from my perspective, it's my belief that for the great many people who will never find a podcast like this or find community or talk to somebody or live with another person who has type one diabetes and get a tip from them, you're going to slap this algorithm on them. And with a, you know, hopefully a little bit of guidance, their A1C is going to improve their lows are going to improve. It's going to make their life better. Absolutely. You know, and that, that for, and there, and then there'll be people like me and others that will manipulate the algorithms at times and get it to do more of what we want. Um, and, and that to me is, that's the future. Honestly, I, I would give everyone a Dexcom if I had the power to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I certainly have, I've heard more and more examples now of, um, endocrinologists putting CGM on right away Yep. uh, to people and after a diagnosis. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, I remember this discussion coming up years ago and people saying, you know what, you know, pumps are put on sooner than CGM a lot of the time just because they've been around longer and right. there's more familiarity with them. But as the familiarity has increased and they've gotten simpler and more accurate, um, that has shifted over the last few years now. So I think if, if given a choice and you told people it's you CGM. had to have either CGM or a pump, one or the other, you have to choose. Yeah. I think most people are going CGM now. My daughter's been using, wearing an Omnipod every day since she was four and she'll be 16 this summer. And they are sponsors of the show, and I am a huge fan of Omnipod in a million different ways. I know people there, and I know good people who are working behind the scenes. And same with Dexcom. And if you held a gun to my head, I'd give my daughter's pump back. If you made me, you know, if you put me in an either worse situation, I, I right. would, I'd rather have a CGM. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. And I think, you know, you do have studies like the Diamond study that showed you can do very well with CGM and injections. Mm -hmm. Um, similarly as you could with a pump. Um, I do think, you know, the pump has certain advantages and then there are certain drawbacks of wearing one. Well, listen, um, once you yeah, see the data, in my opinion, then you're going to want a pump. You're going to just be like, oh, I would love to use an extended bolus here or a temp basil. Yes, yes. You, so you know, there's, like, there's that. Absolutely. There's, but you mentioned yeah. earlier about some of your listeners being interested in those that technology is funny because so there are three people, you know, that I know from high school that we all have type one, only one did at the time, two of us got diagnosed as adults. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I won't name her, but you know, she has done very well. She was diagnosed in her mid thirties very well, just on when she was on uh, blood glucose meter and injections. Okay. Yeah. A1C in the low sixes. She's very athletic. Um, but she did, um, I, you know, I talked to her a couple of times and, you know, I showed up, told her what I did, but I'm like, Hey, you're, you're doing great, man. I, you know, enjoy, enjoy that. Like you're, you, you've got good results. There's not necessarily a need to do anything, but then, you know, I think some things changed a little and she got onto the Abbott Libre and, um, she's like, wow, this is so much easier than I thought it would be. And I didn't realize like, it's kind of cool seeing my body, the way it reacts to certain foods. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, well, that's, that's the benefit of CGM. Um, uh, and now, you know, she's like an advocate. Um, but she was, she, not everyone needs the technology at that point in time, but there's no doubt that a technology like CGM can absolutely give you insights and help make things easier and more and help you do a better job of controlling. Right. Um, you know, and, and, you know, she's now 
a convert. So you know, that's why we're getting up into this. I don't know. I think the estimates are about 40, 35 to 40% of type ones might be on CGM. It's getting there. Uh, you know, so, so it, it really somewhere is at that level. Yeah. It depends. Depends if you, what denominator you use. I use 1.6 million. Um, but some people use different numbers. I, I think that's pretty close. That's mm-hmm. what CDC came out with recently. So, yeah, no, I hear you. I think it's, uh, I, I mean, honestly, it, it, you'd be hard pressed to see the data coming back. Like the, like when I make an ad for Dexcom, it, it makes itself data comes back. You get to see what the insulin impacted, what it didn't, how you can next time do a little sooner, a little later, a little more, a little less, you know, um, do things like I talk about, you know, there's, there's sometimes people have meals. They're like, no matter what I do, if I put too much insulin up front, I just get low later. And so we start talking about bigger ideas, like getting the insulin up front through a bolus an extended bolus, you know, or even a temp basal increase to, to really force the insulin on the place you need it. And then create a, I call it a black hole of basal later, just make a void of basal later so that when the, the harsh bolus you made tails, it tails right into a black hole where there's no basal. And then that tail just acts as the basal instead of a, a catalyst to drop your blood sugar. And yeah. it's, 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 yeah. it's not as hard as it sounds. Do you know what I mean? So if you talk it few a couple, uh, if you talk it through a couple times and understand the timing that your insulin hits in, you can create those sort of, you know, th- those really kind of what feel like advanced ideas. Um, and, you know, I couldn't do that without a CGM. You think I figured that out before Arden had a Dexcom? You're out of your mind. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that that whole concept of, like, you know, the super bolus, right? That, that was the concept in pumping a while ago that much better now when you have CGM combined with it that, um, you know, if you're, if you're high right now, um, you could take even more bolus and turn your basal off and, and get that to get to, to you know, try to really bring this thing down faster. Right. And then, like you said, when it's coming down, it, it's some of it's replacing the basal deficit. And so you get that softer landing. And so these different ideas, um, it, you know, because there's a danger element to it, it's not something you enter into lightly because mm-hmm. if you overdo it, you could have a, you know, a bad low, but how nice to have a warning system and alarms go off. If you are coming down fast and you are cutting below a, a threshold. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that was the early stage of CGM, just having that alarm, like, and yeah, I'm one of those people that doesn't wake up all the time when my alarm goes off in the middle of the night, which is why Control IQ has has helped on the overnight. Mm-hmm. But that early experience of finally ha- you know, having something that's an early warning system, immensely helpful. Right. And so if people are fear of hypo, I'd say, well, you know, CGM can be unbelievable mm-hmm. in that regard. Now, you have to be okay and realize you're going to ha- have some alarms and those alarms can be annoying at times. But it's kind of a necessary evil. I'd much rather have an alarm than wake up in a you know profusely sweating, you know, and 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 um, anxious, you know, at, at in a panic, a not know what's going on, and and yeah. and hoping you do the right thing and that you don't fall back asleep before you figure out if you're okay and yeah. you know, all the other don't, things. That don't come trip up. down the stairs as you're going because you're a little uh, little off balance. I mean, <laughs> you know, just all those things. Like you, you realize the way we were acting when the technology wasn't as advanced that. Let's let's take advantage of technology making my life better and simpler. Oh yeah, you only you only have to find one person who's had diabetes for twenty years to tell you a story about the time they woke up in the morning and it looked like a bear 
attack their kitchen and they don't have any recollection, you know, recollection of it whatsoever. Uh, you start thinking you're going to call the cops. Somebody's broken into your house, but that was just you looking for frosting. You know, um, yeah. it's, yeah. it's an interesting, it, it's a really interesting, David, I have to tell you, I, I mean this genuinely. Um, you would love this podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, hearing you talk, um, it's, it was interesting for me because I don't come through academia and I don't have type one diabetes, right? I, I had a daughter, she had, she got diabetes when she was two. Um, I was immediately the person who was, you know, uh, with her constantly two years into it. I was just still a wreck and everything wasn't going right. And I really felt like I was killing her most of the time. I had started a blog in 2007, the very beginning of 2007, which sounds cute now, but there were only maybe three diabetes blogs then. And I wrote about diabetes for such a long time. And then kind of luckily, I guess, I wrote a book about something different. And during my PR tour, um, of all people, Katie Couric told me I was good at communicating with people verbally. And I just had assumed that everyone was good at that. But she stopped me and told me, no, she's like, you're really interactive. You're moving these people. Like, don't you see like you're, the way you're talking, they're following along with you. And I, it was such a nice thing she said to me. Uh, about a year later, when blogging seemed to kind of tail away and it, it, it wasn't the thing anymore, people didn't like to read, I guess. I didn't want to lose the impact that I was seeing myself have on other people's lives with type one through the blog. And so I started this podcast, which is now 240 episodes or 340 episodes deep. Um, wow. It's crazy. Right. And so yeah. when I start talking about what I was blogging about, I realized I could explain it. And then I was getting feedback from people and they're like, Hey, my a one C is dropping from listening to the podcast. And it, it built and built. And then suddenly I realized that I had a system that I had developed an actual system for managing diabetes that I didn't even realize was a system. So I kept distilling it down into t-shirt slogans, like more insulin, be bold, pre bolus, like just right, little yeah, stuff, totally. <laughs> you know, like just right down to the, the basic concepts. And what used to be an email or two a month through the, the blog, like, hey, this blog's really helpful to me. It, it's now become about a half a dozen notes through different like emails and social media a day. Hey, I just wanted to share with you. My A1C came down a point. Uh, my A1C is down two points. You know, my variabilities, like I just had a guy the other day show me his, um, his standard deviation was like 22 from the podcast, which is <laughs> just crazy, right? Like I can't get my daughter to 22. Yeah. I don't know how he did it. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, and seeing that this was the way that it's repetition even though it's not your repetition. Someone comes in, talks about diabetes. I interject a little bit with what I would do there. They tell a story that makes you more comfortable that diabetes is normal. You hear different ways of managing ideas. Suddenly you start seeing, you know, reflections of your own life in these conversations. You make little adjustments. And before you know it, your life's different. And that was not my intention. I just didn't want to lose my blog. Like that was really it. And that it's turned into what it is it fascinates me because the, the the truth is is that it's elevated my understanding of diabetes. It, it's this podcast is much more helpful to me than it is to the people listening to it. I guess is my is my point. Um, and I've gotten to the point where I've spoken about it so much and broken down so many people's lives with type one that you know I, I have experiences where I go to you know JDRF events and speak and 
three days later, someone's sending me a 24 hour graph that's never over 120 and never under 70. And they're like, there's, you know, there's ice cream in here. Can you find it? I'm like, no, I don't see it. (laughs) You you know, and, and not that everyone needs to live like that. And I don't mean to say that my daughter's blood sugar is always 85 because it's not. We're just very reactive to spikes and we're able to get them down without creating a low. Um, And, but, but the point is, is that it's there for people and it, and it works. And to have you come on, and I, I mean this with, with, uh, with reverence, I really do to have you come on and you don't know me. I don't prep for these things. So five minutes before you and I started talking, I had no idea about you. I jumped onto your bio real quick and I was like, ah, I went to Princeton and Penn. Oh, this will be fun. And, 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 and for you to say things that so closely mimic the stuff that we talk about on the podcast, it made me feel good. Like it really did. Like it made good's not the right word. It, it, it made me comfortable, you know, because there are times where you're saying like anecdotally, I saw this thing and you're saying it out loud. And, you know, when you're blogging to a couple hundred people or a thousand people, which, you know, at some point it became a million people, you know, the stakes are higher and you realize your responsibility in it. And this podcast has almost 2 million downloads. And so, you know, like you start realizing, like I'm saying something, I better say it right. And it better be universal. You, you know, um, yeah. And so anyway, well, you know, I- interestingly, um, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of my Ivy league degrees, but they really don't help with this. <laughs> have nothing to do with my diabetes knowledge. And and I would tell people when I got to animus, I didn't know that much. I, I knew basics of type one diabetes and, and, you know, as someone I I'd read articles about new products coming out and whatnot, but, um, you know, I, I, I had to do research to get up to speed. And like, I would go to these conferences and just go to the the poster sections where all the clinical research are outlined. And it's like, I mean, ridiculous hundreds and hundreds of yards of posters, you know, on different aspects of, of diabetes. And you could just spend all day in there reading them. And um, I, I immersed myself to understand things because I, I wanted to feel like I was very knowledgeable since I was making decisions about what product we go with next and what features should be in that product. But I learned so much from talking to people who have been dealing with it and the, the power of experience and cause and effect and like being able to figure out what you can use from what someone did. And, you know, some people, like you said, with coffee have different, uh, different experiences and, and reactions to it. And that's something just knowing that that's the case and that you can't just jump on something because one person told you that's, that's also an important um, thing, but when someone has gone and talked to a bunch of people and then curated that and given you a perspective, that's where it's valuable. So that's the role I would play. I used to get frustrated. Like people would say, Oh, what do people with diabetes think about this? Dave, what do they think? Mm -hmm. As if not asking me because I surveyed a thousand and five hundred animus users. Because you have it. But asking me because I was Dave Walton with type one. Right. You know, and that, that type of thing, um, you know, happened a fair amount yeah no i i hear you i don't like i don't pretend that everyone's life is the same and i i don't think that i just think there are basic tenets about how insulin works and i think that there are a lot of similarities to people's lives like for instance one thing i tell people all the time like well how am i ever going to know how to bolster all these meals because my we don't count carbs so we bolus historically and how do you learn how to do that well some of the truth of that is, is you don't really eat that many different things you, you know what I mean? Like you maybe have 10 favorite meals or, you know, there, it, it's not like one day you're having, you know, uh, truffles and the next day you're having chicken and the third day you're, you know, like, you know I mean, like you just eat what you eat. And so 
I started telling people like, look, you can look at that plate and say, I don't care what the carb count says. This serving is, you know, the outcome of this meal taught me that while my yeah. pump said this was five units, it was really seven. If I come around and make this meal next week and don't put seven units in, I'm an idiot. You, you know, like, like, I don't just, why would I count the carbs again and go, oh, five units, just like last time. Like, it didn't work last time. And, yeah, absolutely. My, yeah. my diabetes educator in, you know, at the Penn Hospital when I was diagnosed said after the carb counting lesson, Eventually, you'll probably get to a point where you don't do the calculation. You just immediately gravitate to the end. You go to the end result, which is this food means, you know, this granola bar means 2.5 units or, right. or what have you. Um, it's not that you're, you're just going to jump to that and know that association and not go through the math directly. And so, like, I see pepperoni pizza, which I don't eat that often, but when I do, uh, it's three and a half units of slice. Uh, with a combo bolus, which is what it, you know, or extended bolus, 60% up front, 40% later, done over about two and a half to three hours. Right. And that's how pepperoni pizza works for me. If it's the right size, the right, not too thick a crust, whatever. When, when it deviates from that, yeah, I'll be a little bit off. But generally speaking, I go right into it. So it's pepperoni pizza. Here's what I do. And if it goes um, wrong, you're not flummoxed. No, you exactly. Yeah, well, you'll spend the I next six CPM, hours. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> then I'll, I'll monitor and say, wait, with my insulin. Do I need to give a little extra? Was I a little under? Was this a little heavier in carb than I thought? Um, yeah, absolutely, all the time. Chinese food, you mentioned. Pro the pizza and Chinese food were two of the problem foods for a lot of people, mm -hmm. two usual suspects. And the Chinese, I never eat the rice, but man, it's the sauces and any kind of you know breading. They put it on certain things. But I try to be mindful of that, and I swear I still always get it wrong. Yeah. Well, it gets in there with the fat, man, and it, it just stretches out over hours yeah. and hours. And, and hours. if you see that stuff in the refrigerator and the next day, you realize how much fat is in the cornstarch or this whatever's in there to make it taste good. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's this big jello. It just congeals you know, in, a, in a container. Wiggling in the refrigerator, you realize that's what the chicken egg to the young was. Yeah. I have to tell you, yeah. last night my we were finished and... My wife's like, here, put this away. And I'm like, throw it away. And she goes, what? I'm like, you're going to keep that? And I was like, yeah. I mean, I'm not eating it again, just so you know. Like, that, the heat was the only thing making it palatable. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, David, yeah. I've learned I could talk to you forever, and I've kept you much longer than you than I told you you were going to be on. Here's a funny thing. Did we finish what you wanted to say about what T1D Exchange is doing for people with COVID-19? <laughs> well, no, we talked about COVID. I think the, the last thing I'll wrap it up with is yeah. that so we are going to be presenting results um, along the way. So think of it as the cases come in, we analyze them. So yeah, the first 25 cases, we started to do some analysis, draw some, just, just to characterize, here's kind of what we're seeing, but you can't really draw too many conclusions from the first 25. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the, we'll be communicating this information out on regular basis. So I think in, um, by the end of like the first week in May, well, probably the first time we just talk about that, but we've got 60 cases in now we'll have a hundred in two weeks and then there's going to be a lot more. It'll be growing. And we're working with the, the researchers, these clinicians, um, you know, Todd Alonzo at the Barbara Davis center in Colorado. It's a, it's a, a you know, a big, um, one of the biggest in the, in the country in terms of uh, taking care of people with type one um, and Mary Pat Gallagher at uh, NYU. Um, they're kind of leading the, the research along with um, this Dr. Osagi Abikosian, who's at T1D Exchange. And he has a wife with type one. 
He has got a lot of great experience working in the um, type 2 diabetes and HIV arenas before he came to us um, as a consultant and then as a full-time um, you know, doctor, uh, researcher. So um, those results will be coming forth. We are talking about additional studies. There's a lot of interest. Um, and I talked about the hospital. We may do something looking at just hospitalizations because of some data that this other company has and they want to work with us potentially. Um, but there are other aspects of the, what we've done. So that's our big focus now with COVID. But in general, this collaborative we have, we're focused on improving care and we work collaboratively with leading diabetes centers and we're growing that. And so we'll be at over 20 centers that do this regularly with us, picking out topics like how do you drive CGM uptake? How do you screen for depression more consistently? Right. Because um, these things impact care and the the, our collaborative, we help do the data analysis and share it with them um, and work with them hand in hand on how can we get us all to a better spot? And we're all collectively focused on let's get people in better outcomes with type one diabetes. That's our, that's our mission. That's, that's their, um, their mission. They just happen to be providers of care at diabetes centers. And we happen to be a not-for-profit in Boston that works with them and does a lot of data and research um, as part of it. So uh, I love working at at T1D Exchange. And, um, you know, I think we, we have got, gotten more focused on near-term impact and near-term, how, how can we help other organizations and whether that's a healthcare system or um, another not-for-profit uh, uh, improve the, the, the situation for people living with type one. And, um, you know, I think we're, we, we've had some, some good progress this year and more people are interested in joining this collaborative, more centers, and it, we want to get that bigger so the knowledge gets shared amongst all of them. And we don't have situations where, like I was describing, I'm on the wrong insulin dosing ratios for 10 years. And that was such a simple fix to take off, you know, at least half a percent, if maybe probably more like 0.7% off my A1C. Right. Um, that Those kind of things should be done more routinely. And again, we work with some great centers that do a lot of great things consistently. But part of their interest in the collaborative is they're learning from the others. And so they may have a lot of people using CGM, but they may not be screening people for depression and realizing, wow, so that's how you guys are doing it with your, with your medical record system and how you're getting counselors and social workers connected with patients so that they can deal with these tough problems and challenges like, oh, okay. And so it, it's, a, it's witnessing it. It's, it's awesome. How, how do you take, once you learn something from, you know, you, you gather the data and you, you sit down and you make sense of it. And you you find uh you know something that that's fallen through the cracks. How do you how do you put it into practice? Because that's yeah. that's that's really yeah. you know what no, I mean. I, great question. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you. So this is I won't go deep into quality improvement methodology because that'll cause some snoozing potentially with some listeners. Mm -hmm. But there are things called change packages that we helped create working with the diabetes center. So it's kind of like an implementation plan on here's how you do this now. So like we know with CGM usage, look, there are things you can do to make it easier to start someone on CGM. There are also things you can do to make sure that the reimbursement exists. So in Texas, the Texas Children's Center that we work with, um, they've done a lot of great things to drive up CGM use, but Medicaid wasn't paying for reimbursing CGM for people with type one. Right, And they've actually, I think, been pretty... Um, successful in working with Medicaid to get one-off approvals and maybe get a, a system-wide kind of 
change for that reimbursement? Well, by sharing some information and approaches used by other centers in other states, that helped their cause, but they, they took a kind of a leadership thing, like they recognized the importance of it and we help support them with data. You know, we have a portal that we provide that they can do some reporting themselves and look at things, but we also do analysis and provide them with, with things. So, um, but the idea is there are these change packages that we help roll out. That's like the implementation plan to do it. And then there's measurement and every month you can see how things are going. So are you seeing the CGM usage going up? Just like we, we, they look at A1C, we have several years worth of A1C values for all type one patients at these centers. They can see what's happening there. They can see what's happening in their high risk group of people with A1C of nine or above. And, and so by tracking it and really, it, it, you can't manage what you don't measure. And unfortunately we've lived through that as a country with, with COVID. Yeah. Uh, diabetes is the perfect example of that. When you do a good job of measuring it, it really helps to manage it. And that's something that we're kind of, we help drive that change with these centers working kind of hand in hand. And you know, we're lucky to have a great starting set of centers and we're looking to add a lot more so we can have a bigger impact. So, you know, 1.6 million people, you know, we've only got about 25,000 patients so far in our, uh, in our system, the data from, from those EMR, uh, those centers. We're hoping to, you know, drive that number up over the next couple of years. So we have a much bigger sample to work with and it's, and, and we're touching more people at those centers. And then other people can learn from that. We'll put publications out. A lot of the researchers that work with us at these centers are putting abstracts out at the ADA conference, um, European conferences, trying to even share it, learn from people, you know, in, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, so there, there's so much that can be done on that knowledge sharing and getting it into the hands of, you know, working with organizations like ADA and ADCES, the new diabetes educator um, name, um, and then patient organizations too. Like we like to get the word out there. And so we've had good work with JDRF and um, Beyond Type 1 and TCOID and Children with Diabetes. Um, you know, a lot of great organizations there. And we're all trying to figure out how to help each other kind of just complement each other, not overlap too much. And that, that, that's a big part of what we're doing too. Well, I'm really pleased that you came here to share it with me. So yeah. I, I appreciate it. Um, thank you for coming on. I know I kept you long. You know, to find out more about T1D Exchange, you can go to t1dexchange.org. Huge thanks to David for coming on and sharing. I'm pretty confident he's going to be back at some point. I really enjoyed speaking with him. I want to thank also the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter. Of course, more information about that can be found at contournextone.com. There's links in the show notes. Touched by Type 1 is at touchedbytype1.org. Please go check them out. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox for more information and how to get started with the Dexcom G6 Continuous Glucose Monitor. And of course, a absolutely free, no obligation demo of the Omnipod Tubal Sensile Pump can be sent directly to your door by going to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. Have a great day.